Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might uh, grow closer to you, that you would indeed make us men and women after your own heart, that you would steal us, that you would make us bold to praise you, that you would equip us and that you would send us out and use us even in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we, we got into some pretty heady waters and also the, the weeks before, but this week I want to talk primarily uh, about what the opposition is uh, for the Christian in the world today. So we're picking back up in Acts uh, chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down, that is Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they, had gone, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. It is funny. All righteousness. Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. I told Joe Gibbs that this is the text he should have used in uh, the Faith and Family series, telling your kids no. I don't think he did. Well, uh, this is Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They're, they're out for the first time, and they're actually in a rather lovely part of the world. Um, when Lauren and I were engaged, she was telling me where she would like her honeymoon to be. And, uh, of course, uh, Lauren basically picked places that you could only access by war canoe. And, uh, and one of those was a very obscure Greek isle. And, uh, and so I often uh, imagine Paul... And, and Barnabas uh, cruising through the Mediterranean in this beautiful uh, blue waters, maybe stopping off at Santorini for a little something, and then heading, um, heading down to, uh, to Cyprus, uh, where they go and they bring the word of the Lord. And we don't know that the Christian gospel, probably not, uh, has ever been in that place. But they were in the church in Antioch which is right uh, near modern day where Syria and Turkey come together, where there's a lot of fighting right now. And it's interesting that um, here we see in verse 4 that Luke says that they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They weren't being sent out by the church in Antioch, but they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Spirit that told the church in Antioch in the first place to set apart Paul and Barnabas is now sending them out. And so immediately the stage is set for what is the agenda of the church going out? Well, the first thing is the church is sent out by the Holy Spirit of God. 
right? In the church in Antioch, there was a lot of prayer, there was a lot of fasting, there was a lot of conversation about what to do. And through that, they heard the Lord saying, send Paul and Barnabas out. So they did. So there was not any sort of agenda, you know, you know what, we really, we really need to tackle Cyprus. You know, we need, to, we need to go down and do this, but they were completely open to what the Lord would have them do. And so nobody could ever claim that it was their agenda. So when you hear Paul talk, he will often say things like, and then the Lord sent me here, and then the Lord shipwrecked me. <laughs> and then so uh, the Lord got blamed for a lot of things, uh, and rightfully so, that Paul was up to, because Paul understood that what he was doing uh, was the Lord's work. It was not his. And if you read the book of Acts and you read his epistles, now I don't think that that's something I would want to get up and do in the morning, right? To, to be in chains uh, for the Lord Jesus, to go, uh, and we'll get there eventually, how he ended up in Rome before his execution, that, um, that there were a couple things Paul could have done differently and maybe saved his own life. Uh, but nonetheless, he knew that uh, like the Blues Brothers, he was on a mission from God. And that made all the difference in the world for Paul for two reasons. One, Paul, when he went, uh, he says this uh, to the church in Ephesus and elsewhere. He says, look, I didn't come to you with lofty speech. I'm not an articulate man, which is pretty remarkable considering the impact of his ministry. And yet Paul was not known as a great preacher. And yet what he preached was the word of God, not himself. For we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and not we ourselves. That was the overarching narrative of what he did. And so like John the Baptist, his prayer was, Lord, that I might decrease, that you might increase. Or the men who came to Andrew and said, uh, sir, that we may see Jesus. Actually, that was Philip. Sir, that we may see Jesus. And so... Uh, that was what Paul did. He wanted people to see Jesus. And they saw him. And when they did, one of two things happened. They either fell over like the proconsul and thought, wow, this is amazing. I went in on this. Or they thought, let's kill these guys. Right? Actually, there are no lukewarm reactions to the gospel in the book of Acts. You know, you don't hear anybody saying, well, you know, I kind of like that, but I don't like this part. I mean, it was either yes or it was no. And what kind of world were Paul and Barnabas being sent out into? Well, we see here in Acts 13 that they were being sent out into a world that was searching for answers. Right? You see that because Bar-Jesus, which actually means the son of Jesus, ironically, uh, and I, I, I wonder why that's why Luke said, yeah, he's also known as Elemis. Let's just stick with that one for a while. Uh, but, but a world searching for answers, I mean, here's a guy who is a false prophet and a magician, a conjurer, and yet has the ear of the proconsul of Cyprus, this Roman figure who uh, has a lot of authority, and he has this guy who was right next to him, giving him advice, giving him counsel, and it was because Bar-Jesus was seen as this spiritual man, and he was offering up spiritual answers uh, to life's problems. But above all, I mean, the thing about a magician is, um, and no offense, I saw a magician last night, and he was pretty good. I caught him. Have you ever caught a magician doing it? I actually caught one of the illusions. I figured it out. 
And, uh, and he cried when I told him about it. I'm kidding, he didn't cry. He didn't cry. Um, uh, I said, you might want to work on that one. Because if I got it, everybody got it. Um, uh, but the thing about it is, is that uh, it draws attention to themselves, right? These sort of tricks. And uh, you, you're only uh, as good a magician uh, as you are able to keep the audience engaged. Now, I'm not talking about Penn and Teller or um, Siegfried and Roy. Were they magicians? I know they got eaten by a tiger, but what were they? <laughs> Well, whatever they were. Uh, they're not doing it anymore. Uh, one of them did disappear. So, um, uh, I know, I know, terrible. So, um, I mean, you know, that is so funny. You know, if you play with grown tigers, you're probably going to get eaten. And so as far as, he really outkicked the coverage on that because he made it a long time before the tiger finally uh, bit him, ate him, yes. So anyway, um, the thing about it is, is keeping an engagement, but the type of magician that Bar Jesus was, was not the kind that we would think of in terms today, who has a little show in Vegas or does kids' birthday parties or anything like that. But actually, I can answer all of life's problems through my own means of spirituality. So one of the things that I did learn from this, he was, he was a Christian magician, which I thought, that's, that's very funny. And so we had a funny conversation about the Witch of Endor and uh, who is the person that Saul went to to get his fortune told, and that did not end well for anybody. And, uh, but we were talking about it, and he said, you know, actually, uh, there have been a number of magicians who have made it one of their goals and missions to debunk bad spirituality. So I don't know if you knew this, that one of Harry Houdini's primary things, back when Harry Houdini was uh, alive and in his prime, there were a lot of people having seances and trying to communicate with the dead and, and trying to you know, make a spiritual connection. And Houdini actually set out to debunk that, saying that this is false. And was really one of the first magicians to say, look, what I'm doing, it's not magic. It's just an illusion. There's actually an explanation of what I'm doing. And I don't have magical powers, but it sure is entertaining. And so he saw what he was doing as uh, entertainment but the kind of magician that Elemis was, was the kind that said, look, I can order your life. I can help you arrive at where you want to go spiritually in life. If you're searching, search no further because you found me. But the thing about it is, in order for him to work, if he works at all, he's got to be around all the time, right? He's got to be like the magic eight ball that you shake up and you, you look, what, what should I do? in this circumstance, and that's how the proconsul was using him. So much so that if you, had, if you were using somebody like that, you would become dependent upon them. It would become a vicious cycle. And, and so this was not somebody just giving uh, good or bad advice, not just somebody to advise, but actually somebody who was trying to answer uh, life's search for meaning. Uh, in an empty way, nonetheless. And so the world today is like the world long ago. It hasn't changed. We're still searching for answers, and we will look for them in crazy places. I mean, here you see that the world was finding or trying to find answers in all the wrong places. You know, Elemis was not a fanatic. He wasn't some crazy guy who you thought, ooh, that guy's just a little bit loopy. Uh, he was somebody who was part of the institutional fabric of Cyprus. 
He was a well-respected individual, but nonetheless, he was a false prophet. And we know that Elymas was really smart. Why was, he in, why was he smart? Because Luke tells us that, look, Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. He was an intelligent man. He was very bright, meaning Elymas had to be too, right? Now, Elymas, I really do think that he was well-intentioned. I don't think that he was necessarily doing it uh, to dupe anybody. I think he thought he had a real gift uh, to show uh, the world, and yet uh, it was a dead-end uh, gift. And, you know, I could enumerate all the places that we uh, look uh, for answers in the world today, but I think that you know those all too well. And I'm not even talking about things that are as obvious as bar Jesus. I'm talking about uh, things in our own lives that we try to fill up our lives with for meaning, even things that might be very good. I mean, I know for me, greatest idol in my life, children, my children are the greatest idol in my life, that they have the power to build me up and they have the power to take me down. And they try to, right? There was a great headline in The Onion. It says, it turns out young children are certified sociopaths. And it's right, like they lie to you, they try to manipulate you. When they don't get what they want, they fall down screaming, crying like a bunch of crazy people. They only think about themselves, right? And, and it's tongue in cheek, but it's kind of true. Uh, but the thing about children in my life is that uh, they make me feel so great about myself, although this week uh, somebody in the office uh, handed me an envelope. You know how we have the envelopes in the pews? And uh, it said initially there was a $100 gift that was given, and then it said, in memoriam, the dean. And underneath of it was my daughter's signature. And I thought, great. I was like, it was a very generous gift. I mean, I, so I didn't know what to do about that. But... Uh, now, I'm sure that my six-year-old doesn't know what in memoriam means, uh, but uh, she had other choices. She had other choices. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember I was, uh, our oldest, when she was only about three or four years old, was standing in our bathtub, and I've told this story before, but man, it really did a number on me. And, um, actually, it was in the midst, I think, of we had someone come over to the house to talk to us about parenting, and she was being really bad. And uh, I was upstairs, and so we were the perfect model for what was going on. And she was in the bathtub, and she wasn't cooperating. And she just looked at me, clenched her fist, and defiantly said to me, I don't love you. I mean, I was undone. I mean, I've never been hurt so badly in my life. And in that moment, I realized, you know, this child's really got a hold on me. Uh, you know, I, I think that I'm their parent, but it turns out that emotionally uh, they've taken uh, something that's very good, children, uh, that if, if they're saying that, which I know is ridiculous and that she didn't mean it, but the fact that it hurt me so badly meant that they were an idol, right? That I, that I cared too, too much uh, about what she was saying, whether she meant it or not. And so even in our own lives, those very good things, uh, that we can look to in order to find uh, fulfillment uh, for ourselves. The world uh, is also uh, what Paul and Barnabas and John found out pretty early on, is that the world was hostile to them. Now, I've been thinking about that uh, recently, and in the West, we put a huge premium on reason. If we just can sit down 
and reason with one another, everything will be fine. Well, that's not really working out for us. I mean, the Middle East is a very good example of that. It turns out that human beings aren't reasonable. We're just not. And we, I think, as Christians, yes, you have to put forward a reason for the hope uh, that is within you, uh, but going forth into a world expecting uh, those two reactions that Paul and Barnabas experienced, either one of great joy at hearing the gospel or one of great hostility. And it's not, it's not just Christianity, although the State Department um, has said that the, the, one of the greatest groups in the world right now under persecution is Christians. The State Department has finally said that, especially with the situation in the Middle East. But I was listening to this clip this week uh, from NPR, and um, don't worry, the uh, fall fund drive isn't going to be on here. Um, but I just want to, this is, not, this is not about Christianity, but I just want to give you a glimpse of what resistance and hard-heartedness can sound like in our world. In Israel and the West Bank, the number of dead keeps rising. At least nine Israelis killed in a spate of attacks by Palestinians, and more than 40 Palestinians, some killed as they carried out the attacks. NPR's Emily Harris has been talking to Israelis and found lost lives and shaken beliefs. On a Saturday evening two weeks ago, Odell Bennett and her husband Aaron walked through this passage in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem's old city. They had taken their two young children to pray at the Western Wall, the holiest site in Judaism. The family was going to her parents' home when a Palestinian man attacked the couple with knives. Odell Bennett's screams for help were caught on amateur video. Bennett was stabbed 17 times. Her husband and a rabbi who came to help were killed. Bennett is now out of the hospital but still far from healed. The 22-year-old remembers running for help with a knife still stuck in her shoulder. She said that as she ran, she saw many Palestinians. She was looking for someone who would help her, but no one did. The opposite, she said. They yelled at me, they spat at me, they cursed me to die. Bennett looks calm as she recuperates with her children, but she... Okay. That, that's not meant to say Palestinians are bad, the Israelis are good, uh, but in a situation like that where a man and a woman have just gone to pray, they have their two tiny children with them, and for someone on the one hand to be so cold-blooded as to uh, kill her husband, kill the rabbi, attempt to kill her, they never actually, the question I have is how in the world did the kids get away? Um, how that all went down. Um, but after being stabbed 17 times and running away with a knife still in her shoulder, screaming for help, which you heard uh, on the sound clip, uh, not only did no one help her, uh, they spat upon her and they told her that she should just die. Right? It, this would be a good time to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and yet, this, this is the reality of the world that, that we live in. Uh, and I, I don't think that it's divide, well, you know, people in the Middle East are like this and people in North America are not like this, because in fact, one of the most alarming uh, sociological experiments that ever took place was one in which was trying to gauge a terrible incident happened in New York City in the 1970s, where a woman was brutally attacked in the midst of a large apartment complex. 
And in spite of her screams for help and the number of people who said they saw it happen, no one came to her aid. No one came to her aid. The same thing happens on uh, any time there's been some sort of uh, accident. Recently, there was a, an accident in the D.C. metro, uh, their subway system up there, and uh, the number of people who didn't help uh, in the midst of it, but simply climbed and pushed and shoved uh, against uh, other people. Um, and it's not even people who have a bone to pick with one another. And we saw this year during um, the pilgrimage to Mecca amongst uh, folks who are Muslim, uh, that there was a huge stampede of people and just they ran over. People there lying uh, on the ground. And uh, why is it that our hearts are wired in such a way that even though we see somebody in need of help and even though uh, we understand their need for help, uh, our reaction is either apathy or actually resistance? resistance. And uh, one, I think that that's one of the very reasons why Jesus came into this world. And what you see uh, modeled in the life of Paul and Barnabas and John is a willingness to speak truth, uh, a willingness to take it on the chin. I mean, they were living out Jesus' words of, if someone smacks you in the face, give them your other cheek. If someone says, I want you to carry my pack for a mile, which Roman soldiers could do by law, but you're only required to carry it for one mile. Carry it two. Carry it two. Now, that is, I, I, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. I tell you that you ought to love your enemies. I mean, this is a totally counterintuitive way uh, to which the world works. And the thing about it is, is that even when Paul and Barnabas and others and Christians throughout the ages, even when they have applied compassion and generosity and help, it's not always been welcome. In fact, it's often resisted and resented. I mean, in the early church, uh, Am uh, Ambrose was talking um, was that early, but Ambrose of Milan was talking about, um, about a great uh, uh, plague that had broken out. And in it, they were talking, one of the things that people were resentful for is this terrible contagious disease had broken out and the pagans left their family members who had contracted this disease in the streets before they were even dead in order to get out of Dodge. And it was the Christians who stayed behind and took care of the pagans, took care of the Christians, uh, even at the expense of their own life. Even at the expense of their own life. A lot of them died simply because they decided to stick around. And we, that, you know, that was a very long time ago, but remember when the Ebola crisis broke out? That happened uh, in uh, West Africa as well. Uh, Christians saying, you know what, if I stay, it may mean me dying, uh, but I'm going to stay. And so... They did. The reason why Paul gets so fired up and so compassionate is because he understands that people's lives are on the line. Now, we don't always think about the seriousness of, of what we do uh, as the church, but if Jesus really has come to give us life and life to the full, if being in a relationship with him 
uh, hearing his gospel and the Holy Spirit opening our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds uh, to take him unto ourselves for salvation. You know, we're pretty reticent about talking about it. You know, we're pretty reticent about saying anything about it. And so when we see false teachers in the world today, typically we think, well, they're just so goofy that surely, surely nobody's going to believe them. Like if it were me in there, I probably would have seen Bar Jesus and thought, well, eventually everybody's going to know he's a nut. And yet, they never do. They never do. It's all, you know, when people talk about, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, Jonestown in, in Guyana, is that where the people, I mean, that was, I mean, we're not talking about people who were off their rocker. We're talking about people who, college educated, really good, solid folks who went off to South America and took their own lives. And that's because Paul understands, because he knows firsthand that he experienced a spiritual blindness. And until God removed those scales from his eyes, he was not actually, actually able to see a thing as it was. And so in our context, the idea, I think, in the West is that we leave our religion as a private matter. Uh, and so I think that the people, even in Paul's day, thought, you know, Paul, that's really great and fine for you to believe that, but please uh, please keep it quiet. We saw that in the life of Stephen several months ago now, uh, when Stephen, everybody loved Stephen in Jerusalem. He was doing good, kind, wonderful, charitable works. But then all of a sudden, Stephen started to preach. And what did they do? They stoned him to death, right? The same people who said, I like that Stephen guy. And then he began to preach the gospel, and they didn't like him so much anymore. Now, one of the ways in which Christian compassion, I think, is counterintuitive, and, and I, you can come back at me with this one, and I've been thinking about a lot, is this refugee crisis that's happening in the Middle East, and uh, a number of them are now in Germany, if they could get through. Um, I was listening to NPR, and this woman who was there on some Eastern European border, maybe, bless you, uh, Czechoslovakia or someplace like that, does that still exist, or is it Czech Republic? Yeah, Czech Republic. So I still have a globe from when I was a little boy. And, and Lily's like, these places don't even exist anymore. And I was like, when I was your age, Pluto was a planet. So, uh, but one of those places, and on the NPR clip, uh, a woman is sort of giving it. She's like, here's a woman who is carrying a four-week-old infant. And then she looks over and she goes, and I just saw an elderly man fall over dead. Had a heart attack right in front of her, of them trying to pour into uh, places of safety. And uh, I understand the political dynamic of it, that a lot of those countries simply cannot handle uh, all of those people in a humane way. Right? I understand that. Um, but uh, the patriarch of Bulgaria recently released a statement saying that the government needed to shut its borders to Muslims. Just shut its borders to Muslims. And, um, and I thought... Is that really the response that we ought to have as Christians? Now, I understand about the fear of Islamic radicals coming into Western Europe and coming into uh, our country, uh, but we're also seeing it play out in a very different way. If you were here for the Tamra Park 
videos. Uh, one of the most amazing things that I saw was um, in these refugee camps in Lebanon and elsewhere, she was finding people who had become Christians since relocating to the refugee camp. Either somebody had shared the gospel with them or Jesus had actually appeared to them in a dream, which I think can happen. And, uh, and then God leading people into their lives to explain who Jesus is and what he has done uh, for them. And what amazed me uh, about their testimony, especially the people who were already Christians that were displaced from places like Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, you remember, jo- uh, you remember Jonah, right? One of the ancient Christian cities. Uh, these Christians from Nineveh, uh, when they were asked, um, what are you going to pray? For? What would you like for us to pray for? And the first thing, they didn't, they didn't say, pray for my family and I, pray for my, my mother who's very ill and is dying in the refugee camp, pray for my baby because I can't get food for them. That, she didn't say that, uh, nor did she say what I would have said, which was, pray that God rains down fire and destroys them, just wipes them from the face of the earth. I, I want some Old Testament drama played out before my eyes so that I can go victorious back into Nineveh. But what they prayed for is they said, pray that the people involved in the Islamic State would come to know Jesus. Now, what makes that especially powerful is that, on the one hand, yes, we want them to become Christians so that God would change their hearts. But just to be warned about that, that doesn't mean that they may stop being violent. Um, One of my dad's favorite jokes is about the guy walking through the woods and all of a sudden he sees the bear charging at him. And as the bear is pinning him down on the ground and about to eat him, the man prays, Lord, make this bear a Christian. (laughs) And the bear puts his paws down and looks at the man. And then he puts them together and says, Lord, for this food I am about to receive. (laughs) Well... It's, it's not even beyond that. It's way beyond. Actually, what's so startling about it is that when you're praying for someone to become a Christian, when you're asking Jesus to manifest himself to them, that he would draw them to faith, what you're praying is that these very people who have driven you out of your home, taken everything that you've had, killed your family, taken your women, that they would become your brothers and sisters, that they would actually become part of your family. I mean, I don't feel that way about people on 280. <laughs> I don't. Much less somebody, I mean, in your mind right now, you may be thinking about, there is somebody in my life who has wronged me, and, and in a way that is despicable and terrible. And I know that I don't necessarily pray for them to become a Christian. Uh, And sometimes they are already Christians. And I I don't pray uh, for reconciliation. I don't pray that God would pour unto me the burden to pray for them. And, you know, that's one of the amazing things about prayer and how God works on us is that when you're praying for somebody that you especially dislike, uh, that may be considered your enemy, uh, the more you pray for them, the more you actually start to like them and love them. Because it's really hard to hate somebody that, that you're praying for uh, every day. And so that was one of the things that, that really struck me in that refugee camp. The other thing is um, uh, in Munich, Germany, uh, 
there's a church there that has been baptizing these refugees by the hundreds. And the pastor there, Gottfried Martins, um, uh, it was responding to um, a, uh, a question because there was a concern. Well, these, these people are just converting so they can stay in Germany. Well, the German government has already said, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, whether you're none of the above, whether you're, like that doesn't determine whether you stay or not. It just doesn't. Uh, and um, so, so let's just leave it at that. It doesn't matter. So Pastor Gottfried Martin said, I know there are, again and again, people coming here because they have some kind of hope regarding their asylum. He's like, I, I understand that. He said, I'm inviting them to join us because I know that whoever comes here will not be left unchanged. That is a high view of the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not worried about whether these people are here for the wrong reasons because I know God is bringing them here for the right reasons. I'm putting my trust in Him, not in their ability to make the right choices. And so there have been all these conversions in these German refugee camps, and yet, as a result, just last week we heard about a man who was beaten to death in a German refugee camp. The man is thought to have told some Afghan migrants that he had embraced Christianity. A few days later, one Afghan beat him unconscious unto death, declaring that his conversion was, quote, a sin. They can't convert simply to gain asylum, and in fact, their conversion might mean their death, even in Europe. Even in Europe. I mean, so these people who are becoming Christians as a part, that are part of the refugee crisis, um, it's not a practical consideration. Right? It's, it's not uh, looking down the road, well, it would be, as I said, the guy that came into my office last week, and well, I mentioned the sermon last week, this was several months ago, he said, well, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I think that joining the Advent would be advantageous to my career. That guy, um, you know, that's, that clearly cannot be uh, a factor. Uh, what's happening is that God is actually moving in such a powerful way and using Christians like us, using Christians like Paul and Barnabas uh, to speak a word of truth and to be able to say, you know what, this is a risky proposition. I mean, that was what Paul and Barnabas were all about, risky propositions. But like Gamaliel said, if this is of the Lord, there's nothing we can do to thwart it. We can't stand in its way that God is going to have his way. And so here's this man who was beaten by one of the people that he told that he had become a Christian. Even knowing that it might lead to his death, his new life in Jesus brought him so much joy that he simply could not contain it and was sharing the gospel with those who would eventually kill him. Well, what were the apostles doing, Paul, Barnabas, and John, here on the island of Cyprus? We see in verse 5 that they were proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That's what they were doing. And the word about their ministry preceded them. Luke says they went all over the island, and they finally made their way to the proconsul. And so Bar-Jesus knew that they were coming. He knew that they were coming. He had his arguments crafted. He was all ready. Well, he wasn't ready for the Lord. And so the apostles shared the word of the Lord with Sergius Paulus. Now, how do we know that? Verses 7 and 8. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So what Luke is saying is there actually is a dialogue going here. 
Luke doesn't go into detail about what, it was, what they were saying, but we know what they were saying. They were talking about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. And Sergius Paulus is feeling the Lord work on his heart. And so Elymas is intentionally oppositional. All right, that's one of the things that I find uh, remarkable about the world is that they, they, I think in some ways they know uh, what they're up against. And so there's not this fear to really tear down somebody else's faith. And unfortunately in our world too, we've allowed it to become a personal issue. This is sort of the privatized religion. So if you've ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody and you say, well, it's, well this happened a couple years ago. Somebody who was running for president of the United States said, uh, was challenged by an atheist journalist and said, I mean, how can you believe in all that stuff? And the presidential candidate said, well, it's very personal to me and it's very important to me. Now that may be true, but the moment that he said that, he automatically ceded the playing field to the other guy because it was sort of one of those, well, it works for me, it may not work for you, and if you are going to attack me, I want you to know that this is a personal attack, rather than looking at it objectively and saying, look, there's an objective fact that there was a man named Jesus Christ who died and who was raised from the dead. What are you going to do with that? Whether you believe it personally or not, and it shows up uh, in our churches, even in our worship, uh, this whole notion of, uh, of making it totally personal. Um, and I'm going to offend somebody here, but I'm sorry, kind of. Um, my dad's least favorite hymn, we were in church uh, visiting some family, and because um, we, we normally don't sing this in the Episcopal Church. My dad normally sings out, unfortunately, and, uh, and so he kind of goes for it. But we start singing, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear whispers in my ear, you know, the, the feelings I have, none other has ever known. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me that I'm his own. My dad wasn't singing it. And I thought, well, I guess he's not a Christian anymore. Uh, because it's a great, you know, I mean, it's a very touching, wonderful hymn in a lot of ways. Uh, but after church, I said, well, Dad, what? I noticed that you weren't singing I Come to the Garden. And he goes, no. I said, well, why is that? He goes, I need a savior. I don't want a boyfriend. I don't want him walking with me and talking with me in a garden full of roses and whispering in my ear. He said, that's just creepy. Uh, well, he's right. You know, it's not, you know, uh, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, right? That, that line of reasoning is, is doomed, right? Because our feelings, you know, are, are not necessarily a bad thing, but if we're looking into ourselves for an inward confirmation of the truth, we'll never get it. Can you imagine Paul and Barnabas in these? And have you ever been in a situation where you actually backpedal a little bit and downplay it a little bit? Because it's fierce. It's, it's intense. And yet what Paul and Barnabas and John knew is that Jesus has the power to save. And even if it meant their death, they were going to put it out there. And so Sergius Paulus did not believe simply because Elymas had been struck blind, but, quote, was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord, the word, the message. That's what astonished him. That's what captured his imagination. The miracle about shutting the other guy up was just icing on the cake. But what really got him and why he turned toward the faith 
was the word. You know, the ancient world had seen tricks before from magicians. I mean, you know the story about Pharaoh and Aaron, right? Moses goes to, and, and they throw the staff on the floor and it turns into a snake. And, and what do Pharaoh's magicians do? Right? They do the same thing. And, you know, and, and even, even in the midst of what's a pretty neat trick, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, was it enough to convince Pharaoh? No, it took plague after plague after plague after plague until finally the firstborn of uh, firstborn male of any in Egypt uh, who were not covered by the blood of the lamb over the mantle of the doorway, uh, the angel of death uh, took them. And so there are people like in John's gospel that come to Jesus uh, you know, after the miracle of the loaves and fishes, looking to fill their bellies and not their hearts and minds. And so our job in this broken and fallen world is to put the word out there and allow God, the Holy Spirit, uh, to do his work. Uh, a quote that has stuck with me the past week um, that Mark Ginellette gave me is from John Calvin. And, and I think really um, captures the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and John, especially here on Cyprus. Calvin wrote, For if heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth but our place of exile? It turns out that we're all refugees. Refugees on our way home. But God in his mercy uh, intervenes in our lives and, and calls us home. And so I pray that God would give us the opportunity to boldly proclaim his world, and a world that is desperately looking for answers to life's questions, but is looking in all the wrong places. Any questions, comments, concerns? Well, I was struck in the Tamara Park, how after each video, she would ask us to pray for our enemies, as you kind of alluded to, that we all have people that we, in some way or another, feel is right against us, and that how powerful that was to stop us in our tracks and pray for our enemies. Yeah. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.